You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So if you missed last week's conversation, I would really ask that you go back and catch it. It's a standalone video uh, that John created. It was about 30 minutes long, but it sets the stage truly for everything we're talking about over this Koinonia series. Uh, Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship, where we get the idea of the common life. And one of the things we said that we heard, Paul kept getting arrested for proclaiming his gospel, and he kept getting imprisoned and even was killed for proclaiming his gospel. Obviously, If you're getting arrested and even you eventually get killed for proclaiming the gospel, it's got to be more than just Paul running around Rome saying, hey, everybody gets their sins forgiven when when they place their faith in Jesus and you get to go to heaven when you die. If that were the case, I doubt Paul would have been arrested for that. Um, Instead, Paul's talking about a kingdom. And this kingdom Paul talks about is good news for every life and all of life. But here's the part that I think got Paul in trouble. This kingdom pronounces that there's a new king who is the true king, and this kingdom is the true eternal kingdom that is broken into the world, and it directly speaks to any beliefs and ethics that do not line up with God's kingdom. I think that's what got Paul in trouble, accused of being a troublemaker, a riot starter, um, in Acts 17, accused of turning the world upside down. Because here's the reality. We live in a divided world. We live in a divided country, a divided, divided cities. We live with divided relationships. We long for a unified world, a unified country, unified relationships, and of course we long for a unified church. But what is unity really? Like, why is unity often mistaken for uniformity? And although unity in the church is possible, even necessary, My question, is unity outside the church really possible? Like Because do we really think that Christianity is the one thing that can bring division in a nation together? See, Christianity is often presented as a way of life that leads to stability. You've heard people say a family that prays together stays together. But such sentiments cannot help but lead to not only the idolatry of relationships and even family or at best, it leads us into a misled understanding that somehow Christianity will fix the division in the world. I'm not sure that's true. So my dad's parents, my granddad and granny, uh, they played an important role in my life. Uh, When my family fell on hard times, we lived with them. We moved and and we spent um, months with them. When we got on our feet, we stayed in the city where my granddad was a preacher of a church. He had been a preacher for years. He was a missionary in South Africa. And when my family, my dad and mom, when they finally decided to go back to church when I was around five, it was his church that we were a part of. I have fond memories of my granddad. We uh, used to take me boating, and he used to let me drive the boat. Um, I remember one time seeing my granddad uh, take the boat off the hitch Um, to adjust it, and I remember thinking to myself how strong this man is, that he could lift a boat. When I was young and we lived with him, I would go to work with him to the church building, and I would sit in his office while he would study, and I can still smell the smell of his office. My granddad would do mouthwash before the car and after the car, and so my granddad had this constant aroma of, of mouthwash. 
And I remember uh, this, all the little pieces on his desk and all the books in his shelf. And sometimes when I would get bored, I would pull off his uh, South African church hymnal that was written in Afrikaans. And I would learn uh, hymns in Afrikaans. And he would hear me trying to pronounce them, and he would take breaks from his study, and he would pronounce the words for me, and then we would sing them together. One of the songs was Bringing in the Sheaves. It would go, See, I still remember that. It's crazy. Now, for anyone who speaks Afrikaans, my apologies, sincerely. Um, I'm sure I got some of that wrong, but those are the memories that I had of my granddad. And I remember when I would have to listen to him preach on Sundays, I would draw him in the pulpit, and I'll never forget that there was one moment, I don't know how old I was, but I drew myself in the pulpit. And that was the first time I ever remember the possibilities of becoming a preacher. My granddad's a fun man, he's a faithful man, and he took his faith seriously. He put his life at risk many times back when he was a missionary in the bush of South Africa. And now at the age of 86, he still ministers in South Africa. As I became an adult and experienced my own faith crisis that caused me to discover my faith, I started discovering things that was leading me in a different direction than my granddad. I knew we'd have differences. My understanding of the gospel and what it meant to follow Jesus became very different from his. It was the same Jesus, same basic and core beliefs for sure, but the difference of understanding would lead to a difference of how we practice our faith. So when I came to Williamsburg Christian Church in October of 2010, it was in early 2011 that I received a letter from my granddad from South Africa. And I wanted to share with you a little portion of that letter. Here's what it said. Fred, when you decided to preach, I was very happy and proud of you for this decision. You were my first grandson to decide to do this, and I had hoped the best for you and your work for the Lord. However, at this time, I am very sad because you've decided to leave the church, capital C, and preach for Williamsburg Christian Church. Let me remind you that I have no animosity in my heart for you. I am very upset and concerned for your souls and that of your family. I am worried because Ian and any other children you all may have will grow up in that church. Stop and think, as you will be held responsible for what you teach them as well as others. I want you to know that I cannot wish you Godspeed in what you are doing. My prayer is that you will think, study, and pray and return to your first love before it is too late. Jesus warned his disciples that this could happen. Not only do we live in a divided world, his gospel and all that it requires will not always unify. When the gospel calls all beliefs, ethics, loyalties, and comforts into question, it creates division sometimes. And when it does, not everyone will choose the same way of Jesus. Some may choose Jesus, or at least aspects of him and his teaching, but not all will be willing to let go completely and follow him. And then some will just have different understandings that may not be as faithful as other understandings. We're always growing, right? One of the things I've come to learn in my own personal story 
is that the gospel of Jesus will reveal the deepest loyalties in all of us, sometimes resulting in division, even from those we love, like me and my granddad. So this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the member of his household. Verse 37, The one who loves a father or more than our mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Now, admittedly, I have preached on verses 37 to 39 many to, or 38 to 39 many times about taking up your cross and following Jesus or denying self or um, uh, what does it say? Anyone who finds his life will lose it and loses his life will find it. But I've never, I've never preached on that first half of verse 34 through 37. And that quote in your Bibles there in about verse 35 and 36, Jesus is actually quoting Micah chapter 7, verse 6, and he's applying this image of how a commitment to mercy, a commitment to justice, and a commitment to humility will create division of loyalties that could run as deep as family. Because Jesus has no problem calling our loyalties into question, including family loyalties. And when I read this text, I'm reminded that Jesus is preparing his disciples for heartache and even persecution. And I think Jesus wants them to see that a legitimate consequence of following him and a legitimate consequence of truth-telling in light of his teaching can create a strain between relationships that run down even into kinfolks like me and my granddad that their own kinfolk might see what they are doing as wrong or misguided or assign some sort of agenda to it, their motives or their actions, that people they love may abandon or label them. And Jesus even hints in this text that this kind of division may even affirm that they are indeed remaining faithful to Jesus. That is, in part, what it will mean to bear a cross share in suffering, to put it all on the line, to accept the risk, to be willing to pay a price. It's what the New Testament calls discipleship. Anything else will look dangerously close to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others called cheap grace. Cheap grace is this grace that demands nothing of us. But love, Love actually comes with demand, and it's true of any loving relationship. We don't get to love on our own terms. We don't always get to be loved on our own terms. Love forms us and shapes us to learn how to put oneself second or last, to do the things we don't want to do because love does what is right, not what is easy. And we cooperate with the Spirit within us who gives us the strength to love. This is discipleship. And whatever discipleship causes us to lose will be gained in Christ. And discipleship is the journey 
that we take where we are asked the question, do we really believe that? So this text sent me to John chapter 6. Now in John chapter 6, Jesus has uh, already performed miracles of feeding thousands of people. He has performed a wedding in Cana miracle. He has met with religious leaders in the cover of night. He has um, welcomed people who were unwelcomed generally into the fold of God. He has healed lepers and made a man who could not walk, walk again. His followers have seen Jesus' promise and his providence and all of the things, right? Like they have seen Jesus do all the things. They have seen how extraordinary he is and how he must be different. So much so that there are droves of them following him. And then they get hungry and Jesus then finally seems to get a little more um, real talk with them. And he talks about how, look, you've seen all the miracles and you've seen all the things I've done and you keep wanting bread. But if you really understood who I was, you would want the bread of life. You would want me. You would want to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And then Jesus calls out their religion. Okay, don't lose this. If you read John 6, what Jesus does then is he compares him to the manna of Moses which is a significant story in their faith. And Jesus says, hey, that Moses and that manna that God provided through Moses was something special, but it's nothing compared to what I have to give. I mean, can you imagine how offensive that was? And then Jesus gets into John 6, verse 57. We're going to read a little bit here. And Jesus says, Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate. They died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. And look at verse 66, one of the saddest verses to me in Scripture. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. And so Jesus looks at the 12. And I think Jesus looks at the 12 with sadness. I don't think Jesus is brushing this off. Now, I want you to note in the text that Jesus doesn't try to convince them to come back. Jesus doesn't say, hey, where are you going? They had already seen the promises and the provision of God through Jesus' life. They had tasted it, literally. They had tasted the provision of God. And so I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't stand up and try to persuade them to come back. They had seen what God could do. They now had a choice to make. But Jesus looks at his closest people, his disciples, his closest disciples. And I think with a broken heart, I read it that Jesus looks at them and says, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter, who I know had friends in that crowd, right? 
Simon Peter who had put it all on the line. Simon Peter who just watched Jesus' church turn into a church 12 from a 12 of who knows how many, from a number of who knows how many, Jesus looks at him and asks him the question, and Peter responds, I think, with one of the most honest things in Scripture. I, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. It's like Peter saying, I mean, if we had options, maybe. Now, scholars tell us that the signs in John's gospel are what they call provocateurs, meaning that the signs in John's gospel are meant to make the audience make a decision. It's meant to provoke decision. Do we follow Jesus for the benefits, or do we follow Jesus for Jesus? And in John 6, Jesus doesn't ask the disciples who left to stay. And he doesn't beg them to come back. He doesn't try to reason with them. They saw his works. They shared his provision. They heard his message. And some choose the narrow road, and some choose the wide road. Some choose this way, and some choose that way. But there's only one way, and it's the way seen and heard in the life and teachings of Jesus. And the reality of the life and teachings of Jesus is that it will reveal what is deep inside all of us and bring all of us to a decision. We will have to make a choice. And so he poses Peter that question. Do you want to go? And we know that there is a cost to following Jesus. My relationship with my granddad has never been the same. Some of my other family, it's never been the same. I don't take pleasure in that. But I have to follow Jesus in the way that I understand and what I have discerned within people in my life who have taught me the way of Jesus too. My granddad loves Jesus, unspeakably so. And he and I will rejoice in glory, despite the fact he doesn't believe I'll be there. We'll rejoice together and hopefully get a few eternal laughs out of the deal. But I think Jesus is right. Sometimes we are confronted to make a choice. To follow Jesus because we have come to see and to read and to hear and believe that this is indeed Jesus. Or to go a different way. Following Jesus is going to cost us our comfort. That's going to be my first point of three points. Our comfort. And here's the thing. Discomfort doesn't mean something is wrong. We've come to believe that somehow discomfort means something is wrong. But discomfort is actually critical for our discipleship. I heard Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. She's the author of A, Journer's, A Sojourner's Truth. Choosing Freedom and Courage in a Divided World. <laughs> Excuse me. In this call this week, which I was on, she said this. She said, you can be right smack dab in the middle of God's will and your life look like trash. I think she's right. Like, 
Imagine how Peter and disciples and the disciples' life look. I mean, they're part of this great band of disciples and they have shared laughs and experiences and been in awe and wonder and worshiped and then all of a sudden they just leave. Can you imagine? But Peter has these words. He says, but you have the words of eternal life. It's like Peter is saying, but Jesus, there's nothing better than you. The fact is, following Jesus is going to cost us our comfort. But discomfort is critical to our discipleship because it reminds us that there actually is nothing better than Jesus. Two, following Jesus is going to cost us our security. There will always be risk. There will be conflict. There will be struggle. Discomfort makes us insecure at times. And we're going to have strain, and we're going to wonder how things are going to happen the way uh, we want them to happen. We'll wonder if we'll ever, um, how we may, we may wonder how we pay the bills. Taking a stand for Jesus may result in the loss of a paycheck. Taking a stand for Jesus may result in other types of losses that disrupt our life. And we're going to wonder if I do the right thing, if the way of Jesus has taught me to do the right thing here, and I choose that right thing, that could put my family at risk. I remember being in a room with uh, missionaries uh, in, a, in a program, and, and there was this missionary from China, and he was a man born and raised in the heart of China, and he was a house church leader in an underground church, and he'd come to the States to learn some classes kind of on the down low and he heard us talking about discipleship, 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 discipleship. And he stood up and he was so frustrated. And he said, you guys talk about discipleship programs, discipleship programs. He said, in, in China, we call discipleship Christianity. And he said to the whole room, he said, in China, we don't need programs because to follow Jesus cost us something. And you don't wonder what it is you're giving up when you follow Jesus. And then he said this. He said, a lot of people think that it's the torture that's hard when you're a church leader and when you're a pastor in China. But it's not the torture. I've been tortured many times. I can handle the torture, he said. He said, the worst part is when they find your family, when they find you, because then your decision is costing your loved ones something. He said, that's where the pain is. Peter looks at Jesus and says, you have words to eternal life. Peter's saying there's nothing more secure than you, Lord. Third, and this gets to what Jesus said, following Jesus may cost us our relationships. You know Jesus lost friends. At time, there was a time where he lost his family. If you remember, his mother and brothers and his siblings thought he was crazy and a lunatic. He certainly lost his reputation. We know that they lost friends. Peter's words, you have the words of eternal life. It's like Peter saying, there's nothing greater than you, Lord. So let's be real. All of this is especially true when it comes to polarizing issues in our society. Things like racial inequality or what it means to love immigrants or welcome neighbors living through homelessness or with various illnesses or upholding the equality and equity for all human beings from womb to tomb because these concerns are pro-life concerns. They're pro-life concerns because they stand for the things that make for life. And what stands against these things result in forms of death. 
whether it's emotional or social or even physical death or especially spiritual death. And the fact is, standing firm in the gospel and holding tight to the teachings of Jesus and following him closely concerning these matters will come at a cost. At the We Can't Breathe rally in my speech, which was requested for me to speak by Pastor Corn Hammond, and he asked me to speak strictly to my white brothers and sisters, I reminded us that holding to a commitment that black lives are beloved, that black lives are sacred, that black lives matter, that would, that would result in losing some friends. And I said, some of us will lose family, which I've also experienced. And, and I said, but I'm reminded that Ahmaud Aubrey's mother lost a son. Breonna Taylor's mother, our family lost a daughter. George Floyd's daughter lost a father. The parents of 14-year-old Emmett Till lost their son to a lynching in Mississippi in 1955 after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store. And I said, I think the least we can do is lose some friends. But that's not said flippantly. That's said with a broken heart. The fact is, God's faithfulness is bigger than our feeling. The feeling that God's love will not reach me or that he has abandoned me is an illegitimate claim of the reign of sin and death at work in the world. Marked in the pages of human history is a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb that says God's love will never fail him. We may lose everything we own, including people we love. We may lose our comfort, our security, our relationships, but we will never lose God's love because we can never lose God. The reign of Christ irrevocably makes it so because he alone has the words to eternal life. So like Peter, we're going to come to a place where sometimes that's just all we've got. Sometimes I get tired and I just want to keep the peace. The way of Christ makes for peace. It doesn't keep peace. A divided world will not find its deepest healing. Humanity will not find God's kingdom through disciples of Jesus committed to peacekeeping, but through disciples of Jesus committed to peacemaking. Peacekeeping is easy because it costs us nothing. It requires only a head nod, keeping one's mouth shut, or preservation of status quo, flexible knees and propped up feet and a heart unwilling to change. But peacemaking is costly. It requires deep thought, innovation, hard conversations, creativity within community, an open mouth, steady knees, ready feet and a heart willing to change and forgive. Peacekeeping is the act of complicity to all that is broken in the world, including the injustice we see. Peacekeeping is a stubborn refusal to let love liberate all of us. But peacemaking? Peacemaking is the act of disrupting all that is broken in the world, including the injustices we see. Peacemaking is a stubborn refusal to let fear win. And I want you to take peace in this. What the Father has done through Jesus by the Spirit cannot be undone by our unfaithfulness. The good news is that our faithfulness matters to God. And he will honor that in the life to come in this life as well. My granddad's closing words in that letter he sent me, it was much longer than I read to you, obviously. It was very long. He said to me, Fred, 
please feel free to write and defend any part of this letter where you feel you have scriptural authority to do so and encourage others to do such things. I thought about it because I feel like I have scriptural authority or I wouldn't do it. I thought, you know, my granddad loves Jesus. He's believed this way for 80, well, at the time, 76 years of his life. I'm not going to change him in a letter that defends myself. But I wrote one. For nothing else to kind of get it out of my system. Because that letter stayed with me for two years. Not a week went by on a Sunday, frankly, that I didn't think about my granddad. But I never did send that letter I wrote. I never responded to his letter. I received it. And I've read it from time to time. But I never did respond. Because in the end, as much as I love that man, I have nothing to prove to him. I do not have to answer to him. I have to answer to Jesus. And I trust that God's grace is big enough for me and big enough for him. Because of all the things he and I might disagree on, the one thing we agree on the most is that Jesus is worth losing everything over. Because in Jesus, we actually have everything. Beloved, you have Jesus. In him, you have everything. But you will lose your comfort in following Jesus. You will lose your security in following Jesus. And you will lose relationships in following Jesus. But you will gain everything in Jesus a different kind of comfort, a different kind of security, and a whole different understanding of what it means to have meaningful relationships. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 